This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Big thanks to Fee for the last three hours of MAPS. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and tonight I'm sharing a conversation I had with one of the most well-known Australian actors, both here and abroad, on screen and on stage, the enigmatic Hugo Weaving. Now, some very lucky Triple R subscribers are at the Sun Theatre currently uh, watching a special preview screening of Hugo's latest film, The Rooster, which is written and directed by Mark Leonard Winter. Uh, The film screened at last year's Melbourne International Film Festival and it's just been uh, about to be released here in cinemas. It tells the story of a small-town cop, Dan, played by Phoenix Rail, who discovers his childhood friend in a shallow grave in the forest. Determined to understand what happened, he seeks answers from an unlikely candidate, a volatile and quite eccentric hermit, played by Hugo Weaving. Now, Hugo is currently in Dublin for a play, so we spoke over video call. So there are a few moments where their audio is a tiny bit patchy, um, so apologies for that. But it was an absolute honour and a pleasure to interview him. I really hope uh, that you enjoy our chat. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and it is my great pleasure to be joined by award-winning actor and Australian icon Hugo Weaving. Hugo, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you very much. So you're responsible for some of the most memorable characters on screen from the wonderful excess of drag queen Mixie in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert to the sinister fixedness of Agent Smith in the Wachowskis' Matrix films, wise elven lord Elrond in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings series and the mysterious anarchist vigilante and freedom fighter V in the 2005 film V for Vendetta. When you pitched a role or you're considering whether to get involved in a project, what sort of characters are you drawn to? It's really all about the script. So, um, yeah, if the script as a whole is something that on impulse I feel uh, my instincts are sort of triggered by it, then that's the sort of thing I, I, I'm interested in. The characters that I generally like to take on are, are, are complex, I suppose, contrastive not simply drawn. So, yeah, I'm just looking... I'm looking really for something that thrills me in one way or another and that instinctively I feel like, oh, I really want to... I want to see this film. Mm. That's, that's, uh, that's the first 
point for me. And yeah, once I read the script, if I if I feel excited by it, then I want to re- I want to talk to the the writer, the filmmaker themselves, and get involved in it. So it's quite simple, really. I understand that uh, you've worked with the actor, writer and now director, Mark Leonard Winter, several times before and that your character in The Rooster, his his film, uh, was written specifically with you in mind and so there must have been something in, in the script that thrilled you. But how did you actually first get involved with the project? Well, look, Mark and I have worked together on three projects prior to this as, as actors and I just really love Mark. I think he's a wonderful human being. We got on very well the first thing we did. We were staying in the same... Uh, we were staying, staying down in um, country Victoria. Anyway, Mark and I had met each other some uh, years before that. And we got, we got on very well. And then we worked together a couple of other times. And I also know his partner, uh, Jerry Hakewell, who produced The Rooster. So I knew them both very well, um, and Mark had this idea that came out of COVID and came out of particular, uh, a, a sort of difficult time for him. And he sent me a script, and I read it, and I, I just loved it straight away. The character of Mitt that we've drawn, this is the hermit that I play in the film, was um, really complex, uh, mercurial, damaged, alcoholic, uh, um, human being lost really, but with a sense of humour and, and quite um, instantly appealing because of his complexities. I think so. That's that's that was the thing that really uh, sort of drew me to it. Yes, there's so much complexity, as you said, in in the role of Mitt in, in the Rooster. I have been reflecting about your career and. You've played so many characters who occupy a, a really liminal space. And in The Rooster, you play, as you say, this, this kind of interesting character. He's quite cranky. He's a rather eccentric hermit who exists very much on the margins of society. How did you navigate that space between the comic and the tragic, the villain and the victim that sort of plays out? Well, he doesn't see himself as being a villain, so I didn't either. And uh, I'm, that's really something that... The character of Dan, the character that uh, Phoenix Ray so beautifully plays, thinks perhaps Mitt has something to do with the death of his friend. And, but it's not something that's in Mitt's mind. So uh, just play the, the character as written and the, that's up to the audience to try and work out. It's not up to, 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 to me as an actor to, to worry about too much. So, yeah, Mitt's... Mitt's very damaged. He has had a traumatic childhood. He's had a sort of failed, a failed marriage, uh, a child who's not there anymore. His wife's not there anymore. He's withdrawn from society. He's chosen to live in the forest on his own as a hermit. He's built a house, and he has an on. He has a sort of ongoing internal monologue uh, running in his head. He's used to talking to himself. He's used to being on his own. And so that was actually a great joy to... It was quite liberating to play that man. Um, yeah, he's... Uh, it was actually just a lot of fun. It was incredible, incredibly fun to, to play um, him and to play with Phoenix and and to ha- know that Mark, who'd written the script, was, was, was there directing it. So 
It was very easy. Well, that definitely translates to the screen. There, there is a lot of humour in this film, which I think we should underscore. I think a lot of audiences are perhaps used to Australian cinema, particularly having this kind of trauma narrative to it, which, look, is there, yeah. but there's also a lot of levity. The thing that stood out to me is how kinetic this role is, or at least you you imbue it with a particular kind of movement and energy. There's a fabulous scene in which you and Rail's character, Dan, who you mentioned before, are dancing drunkenly in the cabin. It's frenetic, it's funny, and, and it feels very real as well. Are you consciously thinking about how your body is occupying a particular space when you're filming, or do you just allow yourself to move into whatever is happening in the scene? Yeah, I think it was not, not really sort of consciously planning something, just... Uh, with 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 someone like him, it's understanding it's understanding what's what's making him tick. It's understanding the internal mechanisms of the person. And once you're clear about that, what he's perhaps trying to do, then the body should follow. Your body uh, follows on from that. And Mark had met often listening to jazz, so I figured that he was a lover of jazz. He's always mm. had the radio on. He's he's got a he's got a jazzy mind. <laughs> uh, I think he I think in some ways he had quite a slow exterior, mm. but a very very frenetic, fast-paced, mercurial brain. And um, as, as I said, always talking to himself. So some of the a lot of the dialogue is partly to Dan, but partly just to himself, and partly to ghosts out there. Mm. So he, he he seems to jump all over the place in his in his own brain. I think his brain's quite damaged in one. But the physical, yeah, the scene the scene where they're dancing drunkenly was um, that was a lot of fun. We uh, yeah, Mark just wanted to shoot us up close and just put some music on, and we were dancing, and that was uh, it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, we talked a lot about the, the beautiful parallel between Mitt's character and Jazz. I wonder if you did listen uh, to a lot of Miles Davis when you were sort of getting into the character and getting into that zone. I, d I listened to quite a lot of Miles Davis anyway, so oh. <laughs> it was very, very easy. Very, very easy, easy assignment. Yeah. <laughs> I really love thinking about characters beyond just what's written on the page, this idea of music having being able to mirror a character. I, you really capture that in that scene. The 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 um the forest has a life too. So the trees, mm. Mitt seems to imbue the trees with personalities and with with a with a with a group of personalities. And there are ghosts out there, and there are memories out there in the trees. And the way Mark and um and Craig, the DP, shot the trees and the forest, um really. You have a strong sense that that's the trees are are, are living creatures mm. um, in that, and it's an unusual setting for an Australian film. So we're you know we don't often see that that wet um, forest uh, um, environment and in Australian films. So that was a real joy, and it was so cold, and it was very <laughs> cold in that hut, and we ha often didn't have our clothes on. So. <laughs> It was freezing, but hilarious. Is that what you call method acting? Uh, yeah, well, you just get into it. It's fun. <laughs> it was funny. It was 
No, but you touch upon a really important point. We do see a very different kind of Australia in the landscape, not just in the, the wet forest, but also in this kind of wintry season. And I think so often when Australian films are shot, there's this kind of idea of how it will be perceived internationally and perhaps that expectation that would just be lots of red dirt and blue skies, which is part of Australia, but it's not all of Australia. There's also a lot of scenes in The Rooster in which you're playing table tennis. I'm curious, is that a body double or is that your own skills? Uh, no, no, that, that... That's me, but I wouldn't say that particularly skilled. I actually love table tennis. I really enjoy it. But um, when Mitt when Mitt plays table tennis, it's, he normally plays against himself. So on his table, he has a bench that he can hit the ball against just behind the net, so it always comes back to him. Mm. So when Dan arrives on the scene and Dan wants to know something, he suggests he takes the bench off the and, and says, you know, um, will you have a hit with me and we can talk about it. And Mitt's way of playing table tennis is not about competing. It's not about scoring points. It's not about winning. So in that sense, he's, it's, I suppose, lesson one when he's talking about what it is to be a man mm. is um, you don't have to win. You know, you don't always have to win. You just stay in the game. So mm. they just hit the ball back to each other over the net. It's not trying to win the point. And Phoenix and I... Yeah, we got quite good at just hitting the ball back over the net and not trying to win it, not trying to slice or smash or just hitting it back over. And it was um and the the table was incredibly warped because it was out, out in the rain. So it was uh it was a crazy table and terrible bats and, and balls that flew everywhere. But so that was that was our goal, just to just to try and keep hitting it back. Talking to you, I'm I'm conscious of all of the different layers that are in this film. And we talked about jazz before, the repetition in the dialogue, particularly with Mitt just sort of repeating things or not necessarily needing an audience or a table tennis player to sort of have a conversation or a game with himself. And I suppose at the heart of The Rooster is a story of two men who are grappling with grief in very different ways. When you're considering a character like this, whose story has a very real resonance, uh, not just in relation to, as you mentioned, the family, um, breakup and the divorce, but also to his early experiences at a regional Catholic boarding school. Are you wanting to immerse yourself in that history during your research for the role, or do you feel a sort of sense of duty to these stories when there is a real life component to it? Yeah, I do. I do, I do feel. I do feel a, a sense that I need to understand what that trauma might have been like for someone like Mitt. Mm. Um, Yes, he talks it's sort of at the heart of the film. He tells a story about uh, his boarding school and a pair of slippers and a banana, and then you don't quite know where it's going. And then he reveals that actually he was abused by one of the brothers at this Catholic school. He hints at it, and you get a sense that there's a lot more that went on aside mm. from that. And he reveals that to Dan, and then... Uh, and then because he's revealed it, he actually gets furious with Dan for hearing it. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moment where you think some violence is going to erupt. And it doesn't, in one way, it doesn't towards Dan anyway, but it's a revealing moment. So, mm. I, yeah, I felt very much when someone is telling a story about a significant trauma in their lives and you feel like it's just one of the traumas that, you know, happened to Mitt as a young man, then, yeah, I need to do some, I need to do some work on that, need to work out what that 
what that trauma was, what that trauma is, how it impinges on that human being, and uh, how it then sets him up to fail as a father and as a partner. Mm. Uh, his sexuality's question, what that trauma is and how deep it sits in someone. So I did quite a lot of um, research into hermits, actually. people. Why, why do people extricate themselves from society? Why do people want to be on their own in that way? And um, so that was a fascinating journey uh, for me too. Well, I think in Australian cinema, you know, often it's sort of typecast as being focused on violent, misunderstood men. And obviously Australian cinema is much richer and and much more diverse than that. But there is something about this obsession with a particular kind of masculine archetype. When you're crafting your performance, do you feel in conversation with these other screen characters and narratives that have sort of typified Australian cinema? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I'm I'm a great lover of uh, Australian film. I'm a great lover of film. I'm a film buff. I'm I'm a film nut, really. I'll get you on the show again, and, Hugo. <laughs> and, uh, <yeah. laughs> and so, but you know, there are there are there's a lot of mythologizing that comes with uh, film, and there's a lot of mythologizing has come with Australian film, and with um, with with types of uh, of human beings. When I left drama school um, in the early 80s, there'd been a huge spate of fabulous period dramas of the late 70s and early 80s, and or the 70s, really. And they were wonderful films, a lot of them really wonderful films, great directors, and but they... They were they were partly to do with creating a mythology for our, ourselves on film. They were they were mostly historical, often period dramas. They were about white people, often in the outback. So that you were talking about the Australian landscape. Mm. They were they were set out there in the red desert, and mm. it was man and woman against the elements, and 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 the and the character of the environment was massive. And then when quite soon after leaving. Uh, drama school, I I did a film called Proof, which was one of the first uh, contemporary urban films Mm -hmm. that really signalled a new way of expressing who we were, because actually we're a very urban nation, Mm -hmm. incredibly. We're one of the most urban nations in the world, I think. And so most people do live in cities. And, And so it was a chance to explore other types of contemporary human beings who live in Australia rather than just historical or perceived figures that lived in a particular time and mythologising them and their stories. And there, it's an important thing. It was an important step for us to make. So something like The Rooster is some way down the track from proof, but it's, it's a continuous exercise to try to understand who we are and that's what our, our culture is about and that's what our film industry really is about, mm. reflecting us back to ourselves. So I do feel a, a strong link to the past and a strong link to um, archetypes that were presented on screen, but I also feel uh, an imperative to really um, reveal other types, real human beings in different situations in a contemporary setting. And 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 Mitt's one of Mitt's that he's he he's he's an older man who's very damaged, but he is struggling to um, express who he is and what his pain is, 
And, and, and by doing that, he helps Dan to, I think Dan had, uh, um, Phoenix had a line, you, looking at your life, you make me feel quite good about who I am, something <laughs> like that. So yeah. he, ha- he, helps, he helps Dan come to terms with his own more youthful trauma. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. In one life, you're Thomas A. Anderson, program writer for a respectable software company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. You mentioned before Proof. I think one of the first films I remember seeing you in was Craig Monaghan's The Interview with Tony Martin and Aaron Jeffrey. Before that was, of course, Jocelyn Morehouse's Proof. For other listeners, it may have been the TV series Bodyline or perhaps Bangkok Hilton with Nicole Kidman that they first saw you in. What actually first drew you to acting? Well, my parents met each other at university and my dad was doing a science degree and my mum was doing an English degree. So they wouldn't have met, but they both were in the Bristol University Players. So they were in, they, they did drama in their sort of spare time. Actually, they were both more interested in drama than, than their, their degrees. And that's where they met. So when they got married and had kids, we were in a household with two parents who loved film, loved theatre, loved classical music, loved books... Um, and so, and we travelled around the world, and I, I had the most wonderful childhood travelling. But always going to see plays, going to see um, films, um, and reading reading books. So that really got me interested in the in the arts in a broad sense. And then when I was at school, I started to do plays at school. I wanted to be a writer, really. Mm. Even up into the age of sort of 16, 17, I thought I was I was still in England at that stage and I wanted to go to university and and be a writer. I wanted to I wanted to write. And when I we moved out to Australia, that sort of became I was doing a lot of plays at school and by the time I graduated from school, that school I had heard about NIDA and it was something that 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 became my pathway. So, I yeah, I just I just I loved the theatre. I loved mm. absolutely loved film, and I was very lucky to have gone to a school when I was thirteen where I had master screened great films on Saturday nights in the dining hall. He get he get these fantastic films, like he'd show them to thirteen, fourteen year old boys, like Lindsay Anderson's If. When it came out, it was only a year out, and he got hold of it and he screened it for us. Mm. And if, if you know, if it's one of my favourite films because I saw it at that time, and it was a great education for me. And it was set in an English boarding school, and the school we were at was very similar to that school, and it was a prep school, but it was a very similar to that school. I couldn't believe that our headmaster was showing us this film because one of the final frames is the boys. Sh- 
shooting the headmaster. They kill him. <laughs> and, uh, so Very radical was, film to be showing. <laughs> yes, no, he was he was amazing. And I, I that was really where my film education started as a thirteen year old, and it was my window to the adult world. Mm. I. I was instantly fascinated with film as a medium and the power of film and the educational power of film and the the way film opened doors to other worlds and having travelled around the world as a kid, it was something that I was already wanting more of. Mm. So film was a portal for me into the adult into adult complexity. I saw more truth in film that I than I often did with adults because they would not reveal quite as much as a film would. So I've always been fascinated with the power of film to to reveal the truth underneath the surface. That's a very interesting observation. I know that as an actor you have certainly inspired and I'm sure shaped the method and, and, and approach of many emerging actors and performers, but are there actors who you've turned to for inspiration or that you feel creatively uh, invigorated by? Oh, so many actors, really. Um, so many actors and, and different actors over different periods. I started watching European films when I was 13, 14. There was, uh, on BBC Two, there were great, great films, um, Antonioni and Fellini films. And then actors who I was at drama school with that mm. people wouldn't know of, someone like Paul Blackwell, who's no longer with us, but he was a dear friend and a beautiful actor. And he was, I was 18 when I went to drama school. Paul was, he was in his late 20s, I think. And uh, so I really looked up to him. I thought he was the most wonderful clown and the most fabulous musician and the most beautiful human being. So a lot of actors that I take my cues from are people I've worked with uh, who I just think are fantastic, just mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful. So I've just learned so much from fellow actors who aren't necessarily famous. We started our chat with mentioning some of the iconic roles that you've played over the course of your career, and I'm interested to know how each of them has shaped you as a performer. Were you at all cognizant of the cultural legacy of Priscilla, for instance, impact that this would have as a film while you were making it, or was that something that came afterwards? No, I did a little. Again, it was an instinctive thing. Um, uh, Stefan Elliott, uh, his first film was called Frauds, which I played the lead in, and that um, amazingly, we, we were all amazed when it was it was actually in competition at Cannes. And uh, uh, as when we were in Cannes, Steph said, "I've written this other film about these drag queens, or I'm going to write this film about these drag queens, and who go out to the outback." And I said, "Oh, I will do any." That sounds such a fantastic idea. And he got the image of. Um, after a Mardi Gras one, one, I think Sunday morning after the Saturday night, he'd been walking down Oxford Street and he saw a, 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 a sort of feather from a, from a feather boa rolling down the street like, like in a Western. Like, you know, <laughs> sort of. and, and so the idea for the film came from that, that feather blowing down Oxford Street. And he told me about it and I just thought, oh, that sounds like a wonderful film, I want to see that. Mm. And as I said before, if I want to see a film, if it excites me, then... then And then I read the script and, and was instantly 
taken with the idea and the characters. Mm. And it did seem like a special idea at the time. And so I was, I was instinctively excited by it because I felt like it was the right time for it. You, you never know whether films are going to uh, take off, mm. but there was something about about that film that was, I just thought it should, if we get it all right, it really should, it should take off. The same with The Matrix as well. When I met the yeah. Wachowskis, they they told me about this idea. I read the script. I thought it was incredibly complex and the, and the character of Agent Smith, this fascinating, he's a, he's a construct mm. and yet part of his um, makeup is to continue to evolve. So his downfall is embedded in his creation. He's actually someone who starts to be, his id becomes so big, he starts to feel things like human beings do and he starts to destroy himself, I suppose. And that was the great contrast of nature in, inside that character. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And that film also, I felt, this film is so new, different, so new, and they wanted us to train for four, four months doing all the Kung Fu ourselves. And while we were doing that, I was seeing all the storyboards and seeing all the visual ideas. And I just thought that film was going to go gangbusters too. So... Yeah. Oh, it's iconic. You've worked with the Wachowskis on, obviously, the Matrix trilogy and V for Vendetta. And Cloud Atlas as And well. Cloud Atlas, of course. What's it like to work with the sisters and, and you know, how much creative freedom were you allowed to have in, in, those, in those roles? In, in one way, there was, there was a, the script was, was as written. There wasn't a lot of shifting of, of, of what was said. It was quite specific. But for for Agent Smith, that's perfect. That's exactly where he sits too. But we enjoyed the making of it so much. We laughed so much, and it, so there was a great deal of enjoyment on the set. There was also a lot of hard work and pain and physical complexity, difficulty in in those fights. So it was hard, hard, hard work. But we. We enjoyed ourselves on set hugely and, and enjoyed ourselves together as, as a group offset as well. So it was uh, that was a very familial, enjoyable experience. There's a, um, a lovely quote that I found in an interview you did about working on The Matrix Reloaded and uh, you talk about being on top of Keanu Reeves, him on his back and you breathing down his neck for hours and then you described the experience as very erotic. I'm sure listeners <laughs> would love to hear more about that. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember that quote at all. But we, we, <laughs> yeah, we laughed a lot. He, he's a beautiful man. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. So, and very hard on himself. Very, very sort of. He's nothing's ever good enough for Keanu. Mm. But he's a he's a prince. He's the sweetest, smartest guy. He's a lovely, lovely guy. So yeah, um, no, they certainly put us through our paces with the fights, it seems. Mm. And then there was, I think, as the characters developed, there was a sense that these characters were being made manifest by us and by them. And so there was a liberation that came through that as well. And and that paralleled Smith's own growth, his own sense of himself as being the master of the universe. 
I love that psychoanalytical reading of Smith. It's very interesting. The The Matrix and uh, Lord of the Rings, both two of the biggest franchises in the 21st century, there's such a strong and outspoken community of fans particularly surrounding the Lord of the Rings franchise, both the books and the films, and lots of platforms on which they can share their thoughts on and opinions. Were you ever worried that the Lord of the Rings films wouldn't live up to this expectation or that you'd get trolled online for mispronouncing some elvish monologue or something like that? No, and I'm not, I'm not really... I don't get involved with social media too much. I do have an Instagram account, although it's not Hugo Weaving, that's... A, bullshit account that's there's a number of accounts that aren't me at all i just have a little quiet my own little thing that my friends know about so i do love instagram but i'm not on social media at all i've never and at the time when when lord of the rings was being made it was really quite nascent you know it wasn't it wasn't the thing it is now so Mm -hmm. i've never been affected by being trolled or i don't i don't care about that sort of conversation at all. I, tr- I just try and do the work I do for the reason why I want to do it and leave it at that. And the film should speak for itself. I don't. I don't get involved with um, with the fans too much, mm. uh, and unless they want me to sign stuff, and then I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I will. But but I don't do anything online with them. No, that's very fair. There must have been some amazing costuming from the film. Did you get to keep anything? Like, did you get to keep the elf ears? No, the elf ears were uh, every. We put on new ones every day. Oh, so okay. by the end of the day, they started to sort of droop a bit like that. <laughs> so they were they were a beautiful. Uh, what were they made? Like a latex. Uh, they were really beautiful, soft, um, pointy ears. But by the end of the day, they would they would need to come off and be, you know, put on a new the next day, a fresh pair of ears every day. Um, so you couldn't really, I think I took one lot home once, but they put, you have to put them in the fridge, but then what are you going to do with them? So no, yeah. I didn't. And why would I want to, um, they're beautiful costumes, but um, Elrond's a bit of a clothes source, really, uh, and a speaker of uh, uh, exposition. Uh, so I never had any desire to keep any of Elrond's costumes. That's very fair. Now, you've worked with so many different directors through your career. I mentioned Jocelyn Morehouse before, uh, Michael Bay, Peter Jackson, Kitty Green, Zack Schneider, Ivan Sen and David Wenham. Is there a particular directorial style that you've connected to the most or that has allowed you to explore something about the role that you hadn't first recognised? I like directors who trust me and want me to do my job and then also have specific, I suppose, specific notes that come out of the work you do on the set. And I also like directors who talk about what the film is in advance so that you feel like you're all on the same page. Mm. I do like to talk about films and why we're making them and what sort of film this is with not just the director but the writer and often it is the same person with the production designer, with, yeah, with the other actors so that we feel like we're all making the same film and directors who don't want to talk about that. I find that harder, but a lot of directors don't. And that doesn't mean they're bad directors. It just means it's I have to work harder to find out what it is that they, what sort of film we're making. Yeah, there have been some directors I've absolutely loved working with, like Ivan Sen or Kitty Green, but then neither of them were massively forthcoming, although I got on with 
both of them incredibly well, and I would love to work with both of them again. I worked with Ivan a few times, but uh, and I'd love to work with Kitty again. I think they're fabulous, fabulous directors. Really, really sharp, smart, mm. uh, great eye, and um, but neither of them were particularly chatty about. Uh, I mean, I, they, they were open to me asking questions, but I, I mean, Ivan's films, he does everything. Ivan, mm. Ivan, um, yeah. Rex, he was used to being the first AD. He, he doing the music, writes the script. He does the music. <laughs> he does the editing. He does the special effects. Ivan does everything himself. So he's a one one man band in a way. So you just need to keep on, like you know, trying try and find a little pathway for yourself in there when you're working with him. Yeah. But um, I've got a lot of time for him. But, but ideally, I would love to talk more and more to a director about... about um, so with Mark, uh, with The Rooster, we talked a lot about the sorts of films that we loved. And we're both big fans of uh, Nuri Bilge Ceylan, or Ceylan, the Turkish director, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. We talked about his films a lot with regard to The Rooster, interestingly, and the power of landscape what that could say, the, the power of suggestion, the power of tone and the sort of wistful quality that sits underneath, I, I, inside all of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's my favourite filmmaker, so it was great to talk to Mark about him. But everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Every director's different. Every actor is different. And I don't know how directors deal with so many different actors. Some actors don't want to hear anything, don't want to talk about anything, they just want to do their work or they want... Other actors want to be coached through each scene. They want someone to coach them and to talk, now Now do this and now do that. I hate that. <laughs> I, I cannot stand directors telling me, now this is happening and now, now be more like this during a, during a take. It's like I just, just stop the camera like, please don't ever do that. Let's talk between, <laughs> talk between um, you know, takes, not during. Mm. Um, I don't like having a performance elicited from me as if I, as if I need my hand being held. Mm. Have you ever been tempted to go behind the camera yourself? Yeah, I have. But then I, I, I definitely, but I, um, cause I did, I, yeah, I, I have. And I, I thought, well, I would have to write the film myself in order to do it. So, and it was also one of the, one of the things I was very, I was really pushing Mark to make The Rooster because he, he wanted to make it. And I'm not saying I, I, I really had much say in it, but there were times when he was unsure about it. Mm-hmm. And that was me talking to myself, you know, you can do it, you can do it. But uh, so, yeah, I should, I should do that to myself more. I, I have ideas for films and I have tr- attempted to write, you know, as I said before, I, writing was something I really wanted to do. So maybe, maybe one day. Mm, well, very excited to, to watch that space. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. For listeners who have just tuned in, you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and I'm sharing tonight my conversation with actor Hugo Weaving. I hope you're enjoying it.
Now, alongside your film performances, you've also had a very impressive career on stage. You've performed with Jeffrey Rush, Kate Blanchett, Ruth Cracknell, Bruce Spence, worked on several productions as well with Andrew Upton and, and Richard Roxburgh. What does theatre unlock in you as a performer that's different to what happens on screen? So the theatre is live. Rehearsal is live in a way, but you don't have an audience. And then the audience brings something else to uh, theatre that you don't get on a film set. Mm -hmm. Although on a film set there is always an audience, there's always a camera, and there are always the crew is always sitting there in the room with you. So there's a sense of performance, there is a sense of being live, but it's not the same. It doesn't have the same impetus or the same... When you're on stage in the middle of a production... The actors are running the show. The actors are creating the pace. The actors are creating the uh, tone and the mood. The actors are flowing through the piece, the writing. And so it's an actor's medium. Theatre is an actor's medium. And it's also thrilling, or it can be thrilling, because you can you can take yourselves on a journey with hopefully wonderful um, scripts, you can take yourselves and the audience on a journey so it's a communal experience. Mm. And that that does happen on film, but not to the extent that it does in theatre. So you can fly in theatre in a way that is harder to on film. Mm. Film offers you a breathing space as an actor, a, a more gentle, a more, I won't use the word truthful, but a more... Yeah, more of a breathing space on film. There's a more of a propulsion with uh, as an actor on on stage, and there's a sense of there's a sense of pushing towards the end, pushing towards the goal, which you never get on a film because very rarely will a film. You know, you'll shoot it over many many weeks, and you'll shoot everything out of sequence, and it's compartmentalized, and you have to be there at the moment in the character in the space with the other actors and being, depending on the style and on the tone of the piece, truthful within that framework. But on stage, yes, I've just come off stage tonight and it was actually a really thrilling show in many ways and felt like we we keep taking it to a, a better place each night. Hopefully that always happens. It doesn't always happen, but hopefully with a complex play like The President, which is the one we're doing at the moment, there's an endless mine to keep digging in and keep revealing more and more complexity about the characters and about the situation for the audience. That's really thrilling. Mm. So the repetition of theatre is both the best thing about it, but it can also be the problem with it. If you're in a play which is a boulevard comedy, for example, the piece won't necessarily be a wonderful mine for you to delve into every night. Mm. You have to recreate something for the audience. Mm. They, they read it afresh every night. You have to appear to be fresh every night. Some plays become, there's less to find in them. There's less to find. It doesn't mean they're bad plays. It just means they're a particular type of play and you can't find much more complexity in them, you know. But uh, no, th- theatres... Theatre and film are wonderful, wonderfully different, but they're great. Com- they're very complementary. And as an actor, that's why I do theatre and film because I learn a lot about film doing theatre, and I learn a lot about theatre doing film. I learn what you can do on stage that can be much quieter, much more 
you can drop things. Um, you can you can allow for entropy if you you can mm. on stage when we were doing Waiting for Godot, Roxborough and I. There were times in Beckett's script where the characters they're just they're in limbo, they're in purgatory, and they have to just wait. And they create little games for themselves, little little things to do each day to make their lives meaningful. But it's meaningless. They're trying to find meaning in their lives, but there isn't any meaning. And we found times where the characters would let things drop, but then the actors themselves could almost stop acting. And that was really quite thrilling on mm-hmm. stage to do and that would be a space you think, oh, that can happen in film, but it can happen in theatre as well. And similarly with film, you can be really massive on film. You, and one of my acting teachers at NIDA when I was in my third year there, he said, now, when you go and do films, we hadn't done much. He said, you have to sort of reduce everything by about 60%, like just, just, like, just really like bring it down. And I think that's a terrible, it was a terrible piece of advice because there are films... Like Captain America, for example, that character of Red Skull is huge. He's outrageous. He's a he's a mask. He's a he's a he's a he, he thinks Hitler is was a was was a complete you know pussy. He he's so full of himself, and it demands that you play the villain. It demi- that role demands that you are larger than life. Mm. So there's a space on film for huge performance, I think. And I mean, Mitt Mitt is bonkers, and that's a large performance, really. But hopefully it's embedded and truthful as well. So theatre helps me a lot on film and vice versa. And I love that when you're talking before about the largeness of a character, you know, there's this uncontainable quality when, when Mitt is using that space. And it's great yeah. that you didn't take on that advice from your NIDA professor. <laughs> um, because he, well, mine, yeah. he, was a wonderful, he was a wonderful teacher, uh, George Whaley, but he, he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And I owe a lot to him, but... Yeah, that advice was not not the best. And actually, he was in Bodyline. He ended up being uh, he uh, was so it was one of my first jobs out of yeah. NIDA, and he was in it. <laughs> he was playing one of the one of the lords, and um, it was hilarious to be on set with him because I thought his performance was way over the top. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he just didn't want you stealing his scenes. Yeah, maybe I don't know. <laughs> Now, I'm sure you have witnessed firsthand the many shifts and trends in our in our local film industry over the last few decades. We've touched upon some of those over the course of this conversation, but how would how would you define the the current era of Australian cinema that we're in now? Like what excites you about our local industry? Well, I think there are a lot of really and there always have been a lot of really fabulous filmmakers. Mm. There really are. Housekeeping for Beginners I saw recently. I thought it was just beautiful, just beautiful. I saw it down at the Adelaide Film Festival. I love Ivan Sen's work. Glendon Ivan, again, is a director I've worked with and a couple of times, and I think he's beautiful. You know, Kitty is a huge talent. My Kitty's a massive talent. And Ivan, Ivan um, um, yeah, there's so many wonderful filmmakers, actually. Mm. The problem that we have is that we tend to... We keep on underlining success as being something that happens in America. Mm. So even the Actor Awards will 
promote themselves and promote Australian film by promoting Australian TV and by promoting Australians who have succeeded in America mm. above the filmmakers who work in Australia or the, or the actors who work in Australia. And the film industry needs, desperately needs more focus put on it. We need a, we need a culture that's discussed. We used to have cinema papers. We don't have cinema mm. papers. We used to have a lot of, a lot of different forum that we don't have anymore. And so that conversation about who we are happens in the film itself, but it doesn't happen around film. And so promoting Australian film is the biggest problem we've always faced. And it seems to be more problematic now than mm. ever before. We we make great films. We make really great films because we're the only people who make Australian films. That you know, and that's why I keep on doing them. And I, and I'm excited to work with um, wonderful directors. You know, mm. uh, and they absolutely exist. But it's uh, so I think it's exciting. But I'm I'm also constantly defeated by the sense that we don't value our own our own culture in the way that we should and we're always thinking success happens in LA mm. so the actors for example will will award more awards each year for actors who do well overseas and they'll award you know american films because they've got australian actors in them mm. and that's great and i think they're wonderful people and wonderful actors but we need to we need to highlight who we are and we need to support who we are and we need to promote who we are at every level, government mm. level and in every way we can. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And unfortunately, we have seen the cuts to funding for, you know, film magazines, for really important journals on film. Yeah, it's it's a real honour to have a weekly film show on community radio. But these spaces about criticism and community are becoming smaller and smaller, unfortunately. So hopefully yeah. there'll be a, there'll be a change. But that's why it's a pleasure to be talking to you. So oh, thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> Gigo, it has been such an honour to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 